Jake, thank you for that. Um, I don't remember any. No, I do remember. Uh, I, I remember all of that. I remember Oklahoma State just coming in and inundating uh, the Hooker uh, Auditorium that morning. And what I remember is that uh, the song service went a little long, and the worship service, went, before I even got up, went a little long. And I thought, there is no way I'm going to get through all of this. And so I said, Lord, just help me get through it, and I just talked as fast as I could, and we got done in about 15 minutes, and everybody was happy, I think. Uh, but, uh, boy, I tell you what, it's always great. Uh, Phyllis and I got up really early this morning and drove in uh, today. Uh, we were going to come and spend the night and eat a steak or some barbecue or something like we usually like to do uh, in Canadian. But uh, we got up early this morning, and it was a great drive over. And I was just thinking about this church. Eight years ago, eight years ago, and I asked Jake, how long have you been here? And he said, I've been here eight years. Eight years ago was the very first time that I came to this congregation to preach. I was to have come the Sunday before, but there was a snowstorm, an ice storm in, in, uh, in Oklahoma City. I don't know if it had hit Canadian, but I talked to one of you elders. I don't know who I talked to, but you were so gracious and kind. I, I know it wasn't Shane. I talked to Shane up to that point, but uh, you were so gracious and kind and said, hey, we absolutely understand it. And I think the very next Sunday I came, and it was the very first Sunday you were here, um, but you didn't preach that Sunday. You sat in the in the audience and probably thought, you know, why in the world am I here? I don't know what you were thinking, but... Uh, uh, it was a great Sunday, and it's been an honor to come back and to preach for you all um, over the last eight years, uh, at least once a year. And so I really appreciate that, except for the last two years when things have been a little bit different. When we walked in also, the very first thing we said is we looked at each other and said, what is that $128,000 plus on the, on the wall? And when we got your bulletin and read about that, we thought that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. That is a wonderful way to finance missions. That's just all there is to it. And so I know you've done that for a while, and I would encourage you uh, to keep on keeping on. Final thing I want to say, final thing I want to say, I don't know if I'll ever see you again. I'm retiring from Oklahoma Christian in May, and so uh, who knows where the Lord will take me. But this is a great, great church. I hope you know how great the Canadian Church of Christ is in the brotherhood. Because whether you know it or not, I know it. It's, you're talked about all the time as the way to do it right. Seriously. For those of you who aren't too happy right now with the church, you need to hear you are held up as, as a banner, as a standard for the way uh, you are to do church. And when I say do church, I don't mean just what happens on Sunday morning, but I ta I'm talking about ministry in general. And so when people all the time call me and say, is there anybody, is there any church in the Brotherhood that's really making an impact on the community and, and causing people to grow... Let me tell you something. I, uh, th there aren't many, but I can always say, but there's a church in the panhandle of Texas that is. And I've told that to elderships seven times the size of this congregation. Okay? 
Now, number two, because you'll never see me probably again, maybe, maybe I will be back, don't let him go. Don't let him go. And I'll tell you why. If you think there is a plethora of good preachers out there, you have your head in the sand. It is a difficult thing. So hang on to this boy over here, this man over here, because you've got a good one, and you know it. I will tell you, number three, the transformation of this church that I have just witnessed in eight years is absolutely amazing. You probably can't tell it. Maybe you can. But let me tell you, as a, as a visitor once a year for the last eight years, every time I come, things have changed for the better. So if you're discouraged right now, don't be discouraged because you have set the bar for, for, for church. You really have. You really, really have. And I've taken all my time. I think we'll just offer the invitation right now. You all can go home. But here's what we're going to do for just a little bit. I want you to take your Bibles, and I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 25. Goodness, we're going to look at uh, a passage of Scripture that some of you know inside and out. You've heard so many sermons on this passage of Scripture, it's not even funny. You've taught so many classes on this passage of Scripture, it's not even funny. But we're going to look at verses 1 through 13 of Matthew chapter 25. You know, the Bible talks a lot about weddings, and one of the most familiar, really, in all of Scripture is recorded right here in the 25th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. It's the parable of the ten virgins. It's the parable of the ten maidens. Five of them were wise. Five of them were foolish. And Jesus tells us this story. And let's go ahead and just read the first 13 verses of Matthew chapter 25. The Bible says this, At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they became drowsy and fell asleep. But at midnight the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know who you are, or I don't know you. Then the final verse, therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Now, most of us, probably, if we've studied the Bible for any length of time, if we know Bible history, we know that an ancient Palestinian wedding was a magnificent occasion. 
We think we have magnificent weddings today, and we absolutely do, but it was a big, big deal back then. People would come for miles around, and remember, they didn't have cars or trains or buses or planes to get to the wedding. They would have to come by foot or by some other crude uh, way of transportation. The Jews used to have a saying, and the saying was, everyone from 6 to 60 will follow the beat of the marriage drum. Even the rabbis back then would allow a young rabbi in training forsake the study of the law, which was a big, big deal back then, just to attend a wedding celebration. At the time of Jesus, a wedding also, you need to remember, was not an immediate thing. It wasn't a sudden thing. But rather, a wedding back then, in essence, went through three distinct stages. Number one, there was the engagement. And let me tell you something, it's not like the engagements that we have today. The engagement occurred whenever the parents of the bride and groom would arrange for the marriage to happen. And often that arrangement took place when they were just children. Now, teenagers, how would you love for your mom and dad to arrange who you were going to marry? That's not an exciting proposition at all, but mom and dad would arrange the marriage. And many times that was years in advance. And so the parents, mother and father, were actually the matchmakers. But then as the date got a little bit closer, the second thing happened, and that was the betrothal period. And in the betrothal period, the man and the woman were committed to one another, and it was just like a wedding in terms of celebration. There's a Bible scholar by the name of W.E. Osterley who said this, and I quote, The man and the woman were bound to one another by the betrothal ceremony. Though they were not yet actually man and wife, so binding was the betrothal that if a man died during that period, the woman was to be treated just like a widow. And if that betrothal was ever broken, a bill of divorcement actually had to be granted. That went on for a year, and then came the third phase, the final phase, and that's the wedding ceremony itself. And it was a time of great joy, great festivities, and there were two great processions that would usually occur in a typical Palestinian wedding. First of all, the bridegroom and all of his friends... All of his pals, a big entourage, would make their way to the bride's house. And sometimes they would eat and feast there for an entire week. They'd take seven days. They'd take ten days just to have a party. Then the bridegroom and the bride, along with all of their friends, would actually make their way to their future home. And sometimes they would stay there for a week or so. I mean, it was a long long celebration. It was a big, big party. Now, apparently in this parable that we've just read in Matthew chapter 25, this procession was the bridegroom coming to meet the bride because there's no mention of her anywhere into the story. And so the stage for this big wedding ceremony, the stage for this grand wedding celebration is set. And in the parable, 10 Bridesmaids are poised on the road, their lamps are in hand, ready to or escort the groom when all of a sudden night falls. Now, just so we understand all of this, 
That wasn't all that unusual because many times their processionals would actually take place at night. The processionals a lot of times would take place in the evening. In fact, that's one of the reasons that those maidens had those lamps. And those lamps, by the way, as a matter of fact, I should have brought one of the lamps that they probably used back then, were really more akin to torches. They had a little small metal cup that was fastened on the end of a wooden stick, and inside that cup, they would put some cloths and some resin, and then they would soak that cloth with some oil, and then they would just light it like a torch, and they would keep refueling it and refueling it by adding oil, and basically that served two purposes. Number one, of course, in the course of this story was that it was decorative, it looked pretty, it was impressive, but also it helped to light the way. Well, in the course of the story in Matthew chapter 25, five of those virgins realized that they didn't know when the bridegroom was going to come, and maybe they needed to take extra oil, and they did. But the Bible also says that the five foolish ones didn't think that far ahead, and they didn't bring any oil. And as the time passed, the story goes, they became sleepy and drowsy, and they fell asleep, and at midnight, at midnight... The groom comes, and suddenly they begin to shout, The bridegroom comes. The bridegroom is arriving. And the five of those maidens who had the capacity to make light and the five who didn't all scurried around getting ready for the groom to come. But the five foolish maids tried to find some oil but couldn't find it. And the bridegroom went on into the house, and the door was shut. And the Bible says the door never opened for those five foolish virgins or those five foolish maidens ever again. Now, bottom line, there are scores and scores. There are dozens and dozens of lessons from that magnificent parable. And I'm just going to share with you very, very quickly three lessons that come from that parable, okay? We're going to rapid fire them, and so here they are. Here's the very first one, and it's kind of long, and so... Don't have notes this morning, but I want you to remember this, and I want you to apply it to your life, and I even want you to apply it to the Canadian Church of Christ congregation. Here it is. First thing that I want to share with you is this. The passing of time fosters familiarity, then routine, and then apathy. I want you to listen to that one more time. The passing of time first fosters familiarity, then routine, and then apathy. In this parable, in Matthew chapter 25, the maidens are on the scene for a very distinct purpose. The Bible says that they're going to participate and celebrate in a wedding. You can just imagine how excited they are. Most of us, I would imagine here today, have played an important role in weddings other than our own. And it's always an honor to be invited to share in such a momentous occasion with somebody that we love, to be a part of their happiness, to be a part of their joy. And one of the things that I used to like best when I preached at Memorial Road, was performing wedding ceremonies. I kind of liked, I actually kind of liked to perform. I didn't like to go to the rehearsals the night before, but I kind of liked to do the weddings. And I would stand right here, about right here, and the groom would come in with all of his entourage either over here or over there. And to see that groom white-faced and clammy and not knowing even where he's at was a true joy for me as a gospel preacher. I love to see that. 
I knew that when he repeated those vows, he didn't hear a thing he was saying out loud. But it's a fun thing to do. I enjoyed the excitement, and most of us had. And in this particular situation, there's this unexpected delay. And really, even in that kind of excitement, can't you hear? I mean, can't you just close your eyes and hear those ten bridesmaids? And they're chattering, and they're laughing, and they're giggling, and they're clamoring. I mean, they're so excited about what's going to happen. But after a while, as is usually the case, the conversation kind of slowed. And the conversation all of a sudden becomes silent. And the silence all of a sudden becomes sleep. I have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us. I don't know any idea why the bridegroom took so long to come. I don't know why the bridegroom tarried. Maybe he lost track of time with his friends. Maybe something happened and went wrong. But when he finally comes down that road, here are ten virgins, and look at this. They're all asleep. I mean, they're sound asleep. If you really stop and think about it, if you just look at this story and you don't know the end, it's kind of a comical scene. I told you I've done a lot of weddings. I've seen about everything that you could see in a wedding. I performed my sister's wedding, and in my sister's wedding, a dog, the dog that belonged to the best man right before the wedding, the best man's dog ate my sister's wedding ring. He had thought it would be brilliant for him to take the ring home after rehearsal. And he had a golden retriever, and the dog ate the wedding ring. That is the dumbest thing I've ever been a part of in my life. Sometimes funny things happen at weddings. It was a little comical, I would imagine, when the groom saw all ten women asleep. But I want you to remember this. I want you to see that the passing of time made the excitement of the moment fade into familiarity and eventually into apathy, and they went to sleep. Now, folks, isn't that the way it always is? You enter a situation, you enter into a relationship, you take on a task, you're all excited, you're all enthused, but then time passes and everything gets familiar and a routine develops, and the next thing you know, apathy, slumber, whatever you want to call it, sets in. I love watching children take off for school at the end of August. I mean, they're so excited about school. They can't wait to get that new teacher, and they can't wait to get their new books. They can't wait to get all of those new clothes. They're all anxious to see all of their friends. I mean, school's going to be so great. But how are they about the second week of October? Uh, They're dying for a break. They can't wait for fall break or Christmas break or even spring break. And really, it's the same way with the job, isn't it? You know, one of the great problems of marriage, if you really stop and think about it, is you have the meeting and you have the dating and you have the courtship and then you have a time of excitement and then there's the highlight with the wedding and then it gets even better. You have the honeymoon And then as time passes over the years, luster fades, routine sets in. And a lot of couples, you know this to be true, a lot of couples lose sight of the commitment that they vowed to one another. One of the greatest things, Phyllis and I have been married 45, 46, 45, 46 years this August. 
may not be married much longer. Uh, you know, COVID was a terrible thing. But one of the great things about COVID, at least in my part, is, you know, I had to stay home for a long time and work from home. That's just the rule at Oklahoma Christian. And uh, we finally looked at each other and said, you know what? We really like each other. We think we can do this after 45 years. And quite frankly, I've heard a lot of families, I've heard a lot of older couples say, you know what? We kind of fell in love with each other again. I'm just saying all of us have probably gone through something like this. Folks, as troublesome as that principle can be in those examples that I've just mentioned, it's an even greater significance when we look at the big picture of life. Please listen to me. You and I are here for a single purpose. Do you know what the purpose is? We are here to serve and to glorify God. Bottom line. I wish I could teach that better. You, you know, Jake, I, I don't know how to teach that better than just saying it. We're here to serve and to glorify God. That's why we are here, period. That's it. That's it. And when a person recognizes that purpose for her life or for his life and responds to the grace of God through Jesus Christ and obeys the gospel of Jesus Christ as Kelly prayed through baptism, the plan of salvation, it is a magnificent and it is an exciting thing. Have you ever seen a person, though, come to Christ who really realized how lost they had been? Have you, have you ever? Maybe you were that way. I mean, they really realize how lost they really are and they come out of this world of darkness and selfishness. And I've seen them come down an aisle just like this or an aisle just like that, bawling their eyes out, tears streaming down their faces, and they want to be baptized into Jesus Christ. I want to be baptized, Kent, right now. And we go up, and they're immersed in the blood of Jesus Christ, and they come out brand new. And oh, they're so excited. That person's ready to take on the world for Jesus Christ. He's enthused and he's excited. But then what all of a sudden happens? Time passes. Life goes on. Things get back to a routine. Jake's sermons begin to sound the same. And a soul of fire all too often turns to a soul of sleep or slumber. And the person whose very reason for being here is to serve and to glorify God in everything we do loses sight of that goal. Now, let me tell you something. That happens all the time. It happens all the time in the church. And there's a warning, too, that can happen not just individually, but it can also happen collectively. It can happen to churches who sometimes nitpick about things all around them and actually forget about why they're here. I preach in a lot of small towns. When I drive up to those small towns, I just my, my shoulders go up almost to my ears in anticipation of what I will not find in that church. That's why I love to come here. Because unless things had just fallen apart, there are a lot of people in this church who realize why they're here. 
I think that's very, very important. That leads us to the second point very, very quickly that I want to share with you because I think it helps to solve the first point. It seems to me that a key to this parable is to identify the oil. It's to actually identify the oil. See, the parable of the virgins isn't difficult. It's one of the simplest parables I think there are in the Bible to interpret. The characters and the symbols seem to be very well defined. For example, who's the bridegroom? Jesus, right? Uh, who are the ten virgins? I, I think they're representatives of the church. I think they're the church. Verse 1 says, the kingdom of heaven is like. They're waiting. They're looking. They're anxious to see him come back. The bridegroom's appearance has to be the second coming. The door being shut surely is talking about the final judgment. As far as I'm concerned, it all seems very clear except one thing. What in the world is the oil? What, is, what does the oil mean? What does it symbolize? Now, you've got to be careful when you talk about parables because not everything is supposed... You're not supposed to have an answer to everything. And so I'm taking a little bit of license here. But, but what, is, what is the oil? Well, to me, it is apparent that the oil represents the essence of faithful preparation on the part of an individual Christian. The faithful preparation on the part of each and every one of us who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, did you notice that all of the maidens had lamps? They all had lamps, but not all of them, listen, not all of them had oil. They all possessed the mechanism for making light, but not all of them had the substance that made the lamps glow. Could it be, could it be that this parable implies that there's some people, even within the church, who have lamps, but they don't have any oil? They've got the mechanics, they've got down the church jargon, they've been baptized, they go to church regularly, they sing songs a cappella, and all of those things are right things. And yet, when Jesus comes to claim his own, could it be that some of those just with the mechanics, are scurrying around trying to find some oil. You ever thought about that? Maybe here every Sunday. But when the bridegroom comes, you're in a panic. And you're looking for some oil. Because maybe despite all of these wonderful parts, they're missing the whole. Do you know what the oil is? You know what the core, the essence of faithful preparation is on the part of an individual? Do you know what it is? It is a heart, it is a heart centered on Jesus Christ. It is a heart centered on Jesus Christ. The other thing that, that kind of struck my curiosity, Jake, was all of these things over here. And I, and I love that it says, together with my church family, I am following Jesus for the sake of I don't know why y'all haven't filled that out. That's the essence of who, who we are. It is a heart centered on Jesus Christ. It is a heart that absolutely adores Jesus Christ. It is a heart that melts at the thought of Jesus' goodness, that melts at the thought of Jesus' sacrifice. It is a heart that longs not only to obey him, but it is a heart that is willing to go the second and third mile 
only because, simply because of who he is and what he has done for you and me on the cross of Calvary. That's the oil. That's what it means to be the light of the world. It is my heart loving Jesus. It is my heart centered on Jesus. It is the heart that at the very core of conversation always talks about Jesus Christ. And by the way, folks, that is why at the end of the parable, the oil couldn't be borrowed. Please listen. You can't borrow. They couldn't borrow any oil. When I was a little boy going to Sunday school in Hayesville, Kansas, and I would hear this parable as a little boy, I want to tell you something. It always bothered me because my mom and dad always taught us to share everything we had. You always share. Even if you don't have much, you share with each other. And I thought, well, why didn't the five who had oil, maybe they didn't have much, but they could have shared what they had. But you see, what you see is the limitation of an earthly story trying to imitate a heavenly principle. That's what a parable is. You see, the reason in this parable that you can't borrow that oil is because you can't borrow faith. You can't borrow faith. You can't borrow your daddy's faith or your grandpa's faith. You can't borrow Jake's faith or the elder's faith. You can't borrow faith. You must have, listen, you must have your own faith. And I think that's a very, very important thing to remember. Folks, conversion takes place in the heart, the heart, the heart. Conversion takes place in the heart. Jesus has offered us a plan of salvation, and that plan is all wonderful, wise, very, very clear and simple. We're to hear about him. We're to believe in him. We're to repent of our sins. We are to confess the name of Jesus Christ. We're to be baptized into Jesus Christ to have our sins taken away. But let me just warn some of us. Don't fall in love with the plan. All right? Don't fall in love with the plan. Fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be a better Christian. You'll be a kinder Christian. You'll be a sweeter Christian if you'll fall in love with Jesus. All the plan does is lead us to Jesus. That's all the plan does. Now, if you don't understand that, you need to do a series of lessons on, on, on that, Brother Perkins. I don't ever want to be guilty of not stressing that our number one focus in life is to love the Lord Jesus Christ. I look around this building. I see Jesus on, on a lot of walls. I kind of like that. I think it's very, very important. You got to love him. Boy, I tell you what, when I go to bed, right before I go to bed, I, Phyllis is always asleep before I go to sleep. But there are times when I'll look over at Phyllis and I'll think to myself, man, I love her. I love her to death. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't argue. We argue all the time. Have for 45 years. Just as different on a lot of things as, as can be. But we love each other. And I love her more now than I ever have. When my boys, when Kelly and Corey were little boys, I'd stop in and look in on their, on their bedroom, in their bedrooms and look at them fast asleep in, in their beds. And I would think, man, 
I would do anything for them. They're 41 and 40 now. I'd still do anything for my boys. They're married, have children. I would do anything for my sons. Anything for my boys. Now, do you ever do that with Jesus? Do you ever do that with Jesus? Let me encourage you sometimes just to stop and think, Lord, I don't know why you love me the way that you love me. I cannot figure out why you love me so much. I don't know how I could be so blessed that you died on the cross for me. I love you. The Apostle Paul said, Lord, come quickly. Lord, come quickly because he wants him to come. And the ones with oil in the lamp, they're the ones who can't wait to see him again. And they were ready. Final lesson. I know it's been long. Final lesson is this. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. He may come in the next 30 seconds. I don't know if you've watched the news, but what's happening in, 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 in the Ukraine is not a joke. As a matter of fact, Phyllis and I looked at each other and said, fire. Next time he'll come with fire. There's a lot of fire. There's a lunatic running the country of Russia. An absolute madman. And he's killing babies. And he's killing children and women and men. And he will stop at absolutely nothing. I just want you to know Jesus is coming again. This parable is nestled amidst several other judgment parables. It's nestled in with a bunch of coming parables. And as in the days of Noah, there's a lot of scoffing going on right now. There's a lot of joking going on right now about the church and about Jesus and about God. There's a lot of laughter. A lot of things religious is being made fun of these days. Most of the religious world just kind of thinks that Jesus, quite frankly, is never going to come back. He's never going to come back. But I want you to know, Jesus Christ is going to come back. And if there is one thing the early church knew... They knew he was coming. As a matter of fact, they thought he was coming. Coming. Does that make sense? They thought he was coming any day. And in our slumber, and in our spiritual laziness, uh, I got plenty of time. And I just want to remind you one more time, because we don't get reminded of this very often, we don't have plenty of time. We want to be able to present our lamps with an abundance of oil. There was an old Scotsman who was dying, and he was on his deathbed, and he was really in bad shape. And some of his family members said, Hey, Dad, before you die, let us read you the Bible. We want to read the Bible to you. And they did that because he loved to read the Bible. He would read the Bible one hour, two hours every day. And when they asked him, Dad, would you allow us to read you the Bible, the old man said, No, I don't want you to read me the Bible. And they were shocked that in the last hours of his life, he didn't want anybody to read to him. And they finally asked him why. Why don't you want us to read you the Bible? And I love his response. The old Scotsman said, I thatched me house when the weather was warm. Do you understand what he was saying? He didn't wait 
until his deathbed to thatch the house. He didn't wait until he was hours away from judgment to read the Bible. He had been filling up his lamp all along the way. And so when it was time for him to go, he was ready to go. How about you? You know, the maidens are the church. And we're one of the maidens. Question is, who in here this morning, don't know you from Adam, but who in you here this morning are foolish? And who in here this morning are wise? Who's got your heart filled up with love for Jesus Christ, a love that would make you obedient to Him, a love that adores Him? And who in you here today just has the mechanics down, but the bottom line is you don't know Him and you're not ready? And when he shuts the door, and when he says, I don't even know who you are, I'm sorry, I don't even know you, you'll be left out in the cold. I don't say that to scare you. I don't say that to, well, I do say that to make some of you uncomfortable. I'm just saying that because that's what the Word of God says. You may be here today, and you need to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to his love to His grace and to His mercy. That may mean that you just need to rekindle your love for Jesus and not be so concerned with the mechanics, but a whole lot concerned about Jesus. And number two, you may need to become a child of God today by giving your life to Him, by being baptized into water, to have your sins, not by the water, but to have your sins washed away. If you need Jesus in any way, won't you come as we stand and sing?